You're listening to WIUX LP Bloomington. I'm Catherine De La Rosa, and I'm hosting this week's episode of American Student Radio, which is all about blood. Blood, as in that thing in your veins. In cultures and religions, it can spell both life and death. It can mean our identities and the forces that drive us. Today, you'll hear about biological blood, fake blood, and the blood that makes us friends and strangers to lands we visit and come from. From Bloom... <laughs> from... Uh, again, live... What is it? Oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens, conspiracy, journalism, and lesbians. The first story you'll hear today is from producer Emily Miles. You might have heard bloodline used to refer to heredity, the passing of genes to give us biological traits. But for Native Americans, blood passes on more than genes or a sense of identification. Emily talked to two Native students about blood quantum laws and what they mean for the futures of entire nations. On these people, one time these people were marched by the President Andrew Jackson, who's on the $20 bill. These peoples were marched across the country and many of them died and they were put into tiny plots of land because people from Europe wanted it and it's like one day that will be all we have. It's sort of disheartening um, knowing that my people are going from a minority to extinction. I'm Benny Wayne Sully and I'm a theater major here at Indiana University. I'm a Lakota Sioux. I'm Gabrielle Anderson. I'm a junior here at IU. I'm involved with the First Nation Center on campus, and I'm president of the American Indian Student Association. I have heritage from the Kiowa, Caddo, Cherokee, and Creek tribes, although I most strongly identify as Kiowa. I'm in a weird situation where, because of blood quantum laws, I have more Native American in me than my mother does, which means that I am a legal Native American, whereas she is not. The Kiowa tribe of Oklahoma requires a one-quarter degree, like, blood quantum. I do not have that, um, and my mom barely doesn't have it. Yeah, so for to be a Lakota um, legally, you have to have one-fourth in you. They actually just lowered it because they found out that in about one or two generations, Lakotas are going to be extinct legally. That's because every time a member of the tribe... Let's say the Lakota Sioux, for example, has a child with someone outside the tribe. The child is legally considered half as much Lakota as the parent. That means the great-grandchild of a full-blooded Lakota woman might only be one-eighth Lakota and technically not a member of the tribe at all. That means no tribal ID card and no guaranteed reservation land. So how did we get here? It's honestly just like a forgotten page in history of when this was instilled. Before contact or you know colonialism, Natives didn't really have this idea of like halves or like whole. If your father was Choctaw and your mother was Cherokee, you inherit everything through your mother. So you would have been considered Cherokee even though you did have like a Choctaw father. But that didn't quite blend with the common European ideology. You know, Europeans kind of instated this idea of like halves and like quarters in like the early colonial period. They would marry Native women and their children would be considered half European and half Native. 
it got bigger and bigger and it was kind of a way to especially as time went on a way to kind of get rid of the native i know that one day my people will be extinct and i know that native americans will just be in the history book as oh yeah one time there was an american genocide the legal history surrounding the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Certificate of Degree of Indian or Alaska Native Blood is very sticky. Its roots are in early colonialism, then there are the 1906 Dawes Rolls, Virginia's 1924 Racial Integrity Act, the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934, and on and on. But at this point, there are two main options for tribes. In the first, the government... The government says you need to have blood quantum laws. The tribe gets to choose how much. So the tribe has it at um, a semi-high number because they don't want people just being able to be like, oh, I'm 116th, give me land, give me a house, give me free school, because the tribe has to pay for that. And in the second option... For example, the Cherokee and the Creek, you don't have to have a specific blood quantum, but you do have to have a relative that signed the Dawes Rolls. But having signed the Dawes Rolls is problematic in, in a way um, because sometimes like there's issues with if your like relative wasn't there the day they had the rolls in town, like they didn't sign them, if they were sick, if they couldn't read or write, if they just didn't know that, that was going on. So blood quantum laws are not new by any means, but with each passing generation, their implications change, amplify. My mom identified so strongly as Kiowa and so strongly as Native American. She spent so much time with her Kiowa grandmother, and she, she heard those stories. Her grandmother spoke Kiowa to her, and she didn't really identify as being white. But she didn't really fit like either place because like oh you're not enough here but you're you're not white it was just kind of this sense of like displacement I guess. So my dad he grew up in the reservation he didn't like it, and so he didn't teach us anything about Native American uh, heritage or anything like that. So th- in that point it was up to me to embrace my heritage and learn about my culture and embrace it. I was told some of the stories. I'm able to like speak some of my language and like it's just something that like I don't want to let die. I have the power to say, like, I want to make sure my culture will continue. I think that um, there is a hope of it existing, because I'm definitely going to try and teach my children about their heritage, even though they legally probably won't be Native American. Um, Oh, that's weird to say. I would make sure that, like, if I ever had children, that they would know that it's not the most important thing about what makes them native it's like how how you carry on your culture and how how like involved you are with your culture or at least like in in my family that's what it's been and that's what it will continue to be i hope that they'll do the same for their children but that's all we have and um so there is a hope with children and children's children but it really just gets down to how much they embrace it and um how much they identify with it because my children might not I hope that they do, because that's the only way that Native Americans can live on without just being in a history book. The music in this piece comes from Poddington Bear. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Emily Miles. Our next story is about blood as encountered every day by anyone with a uterus. ASR producer Blessing Olamorodi looked into the economics of having a period in the United States. How long would you say your period is? Uh, seven days, but the last two days are very, very light. An average period, I'm usually like seven or eight I days. I usually have my period for about like six days. It has been estimated that if a woman menstruates on average five days each month for about 40 years of her life, 
The number of days spent bleeding within her lifetime amasses to six and a half years. Managing six and a half years of blood requires a lot of products. And to be clear, a period on average lasts anywhere from two to seven days. Meaning, for some women, the total can range from 2.6 years to 9.2 years. With a constant need for these products, the cost becomes an important topic, especially when considering the luxury tax attached to them. The luxury tax is an additional tax placed on items considered non-necessities, and tampons and sanitary pads fall within this category. Already expensive, the additional tax means the cost of these items begins to add up. Items, many women will assure you, are necessities. In a month, it'd be around like $10. My period um, pain is just extreme. I'm spending about $25 every month. In total, I would say um, maybe more than $25 every period. So I'll buy a, a bulk box of tampons, which has a mix, and then I'll buy a bulk box of pads, and then I'll buy, you know, like painkillers. And that'll usually last me two months. So if I split that in half, it basically comes to about $37.50. So I usually um, spend about like $28.50 a month, approximately, um, just for like all the different types of pads I need to use and for painkillers. Well, my cramps are terrible. I run out of Midol, which is the cramp medicine I take, like easily. Um, so I have to buy it usually every period. I used to wear pads, but not anymore. So it'd be like, you have to have the night pack, and you have to have the day pack, and you have to have the pack where it's like, oh, you're almost done, but not yet. Every country applies their luxury tax differently. In the UK, Parliament member Stella Creasy spoke out against taxing tampons and sanitary items. Tampons and sanitrials, even I'm struggling with the words tonight, it seems, have always been considered a luxury. That isn't by accident, that's by design of an unequal society in which the concerns of women are not treated as equally as the concerns of men. I recognise that razors are zero rated. Judging by some of the members opposite, the opportunity to shave every day is for many of them a human right. That's one we can all agree on as a necessity. Pita bread is zero rated. What is the kebab without a good pita bread around it? It is a necessity. It is when you start looking at what is described as a necessity and what is described as a luxury that you see the inequalities in this debate. Only a few states within the US do not tax tampons and other related items. For example, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania and Minnesota, to name a few. But this label of non-necessity is still put upon them in many states. A representative for the Idaho State Commission was quoted in a Fusion article in 2015 stating, tampons and pads are used for feminine hygiene and not for use in the diagnosis, cure, mitigation, treatment or prevention of feminine diseases. But tampons and pads help manage a naturally occurring process, one that women do not have control over. Yeah, it's, yeah. An it's an expensive life. It's an expensive <laughs> hobby, isn't it, it really? Is. Bleeding, right. bleeding is an expensive hobby, yeah. It's kind of screwed up that they want to tax something that's kind of needed in order for women to go through like their everyday lives. It's not exactly a luxury getting your period. I mean, you have cramps, back pain, you get incredibly moody, and for me, with diabetes, it, like the hormones affect my blood sugar. With women already statistically earning 80 cents to their male counterpart's dollar, and women's toiletries already priced higher than the male equivalents, it seems the system is unfairly skewed. Plus, the cost of menstruation isn't just limited to sanitary items. Painkillers, heating pads, stain remover, things like these begin to add up. And what if you are earning a low income or are perhaps homeless? The high prices placed on these items mean many people have to cut corners and or find alternatives, sometimes at the risk of their own health. 
Recently, Emily Miles, a fellow ASR producer, visited Shalom Community Center. Uh, my name is Reverend Forrest Gilmore, and I'm the executive director of the Shalom Community Center. Um, one of our biggest needs is uh, feminine hygiene products, tampons in particular, that um, just have a, they're uh, very much in need and often uh, overlooked. So, um, so uh, we really rely on the community to be able to help our, our um, guests get their needs met in that way go through hundreds uh, a month so um, of um, tampons in particular and so so the demand is high and, and the need is high of course clearly um, you know a woman keeping herself um, being able to s stay clean and and um, to use feminine hygiene products when she needs them which is a real need and demand for a whole host of um, reasons uh, just is just super important. It's hard to hard to really um, underestimate the, the the need around that issue. This is uh, you know just um, something that just is a basic essential for people and, and uh, for women, and, and they need it. So yeah, the cost is high and um, and the need is high, and there and there it's not an optional thing for people, um, for women, and so um, we do our best to supply people. Um, as, as best we can. With more countries having their discussion on the tampon tax, with some looking to remove it, such as the UK, or having already done so, such as Canada, it seems inevitable that the discussion within the US will lead to more states following suit. However, some wonder if the current political climate puts women's issues such as these at risk of falling by the wayside. But something said by one free bleeding protester in the UK gives me hope that constant pressure and protest can make anything possible. And cheaper. Could you imagine how quickly we would get free tampons if everyone stopped wearing them? For American Student Radio, I'm Blessing Olamorati. Many thanks to Emily Miles, the Shalom Community Centre, and Reverend Forrest Gilmore. Credit to Fusion 2015, article named These are the US states that tax women for having periods. Credit to the Huffington Post, women protest tampon tax in white pants. This next piece is an audio poem entitled Of the Blood from producer Sarah Panfil. She's currently studying abroad in France. The piece explores blood in relation to her experiences as a foreigner and blood as a signifier of familiarity, nationality, and understanding. The audio includes real snippets from Sarah's travels, though the baby's cooing you'll hear is simulated. <clears throat> blood is le sang in French, but I can never manage that pest of a nasal vowel right. Est-ce que tu peux prononcer le mot sang? The pronunciation picks at me, digs a wound healed only with a native's ease. Le sang. Sang. Répétez, s'il vous plaît. Le sang. Le sang. C'est comme ça? Le sang. Le sang. Le sang. I've been in France for half a year now. This means I can buy bread from a boulangerie. Hold a conversation with strangers I meet. Yet, squeezing onto stools in a packed wine bar or sipping cafe outside a tabac, my thighs slide off the sides of narrow chairs. I am all aware of the space I take, how it tends to be the American amount. That's too much. C'est trop ça. My accented speech flashes red as my tongue, begs the question, where are you from? 
Vous venez d'où like an anthem I know better than La Marseillaise. It surprises me how often I'm not easily placed, though I like this. Germany, Russia, some have even guessed Spain. But I always admit I hail from les Etats-Unis. Call up the map to point to that petit état dans le milieu, qui s'appelle the Midwest. I say, tu connais Chicago? It's kind of near Chicago, pronounced in the city à la française, perhaps because I am told when I speak in French, my voice is softer. Oui, mais ça c'est... My new language is like a pet adopted, who I treat with an innocence not spared for my inherited mutt of a long's brashness. I had my first kiss in English. I broke my wrist, broke the law, worked a job, mourned a few in English. This, the language of my mother, which is, I must remember, not the language of her mother's mother. When pressed for a connection to this language, my reason is an absence of one. I wonder, I wonder, je me demande, je me demande, if this speaking, if through, this a filter, speaking through a filter, has it changed has me? Has it changed me? I mean to say, I mean to say, down to the, down blood, to the blood, du sang, du sang. Le sang? Ouais, comme ça. Le sang, ouais. okay. Are my veins coursing with my red wine préféré, Beaujolais? For in French, I see my first star shot across the black of night. In French, I feel pulled by rope. In French, I reach. I am introduced. I met a newborn in French. As once while visiting a friend, he and happenstance led me toward signs that read, vers la salle de maternité, into the heat of a maternity ward, where his cousine gave birth the day before. Here I peered over a crib's plastic barriers to wave to a smudge of a human, her gloved fist clenched just half the size of my thumb. I sat amongst three generations gathered in a room, in a village where their roots, their racines, spread out as far as the champagne vineyards they tend. And though I spoke their language with a stranger's tongue, and though I was not blood, I too was greeted by Les Bisous, a kiss on each cheek, like I watched the father mime against the blushing visage of his baby. For American Student Radio, I'm Sarah Panfill. So when I was coming up with bloody things for this episode, I was on sound crew for the theater department's most recent play, The Duchess of Malfi. It's a macabre tragedy where, like, ten people die, including two smothered babies. So for this next piece, producer Sheila Raghavendran met with the show's costume designer to talk through the ins and outs of onstage carnage. That's a messy job, so beware. Um, that messy job is the making of stage blood, or as Emmy Phelps describes it, Watered-down chocolate gravy. Phelps designed costumes and made stage blood for IU Theater's The Duchess of Malfi, a show known for its bloody deaths. I met with her a few hours before one of the shows. The blood is made out of cornstarch, corn syrup, white corn syrup, um, food coloring, and a little bit of chocolate. And um, it's kind of like equal parts of all of them, and then you mix it all together. And it kind of dries hard like real blood. She said she got the recipe from the U.S. Institute for Theater Technology's article, Out Damned Spot. 
that's got like all of the theatrical blood recipes you can possibly ever imagine. And then um, they're all tested for washability and wear. Um, and this is one of the most washable as well as one of the most realistic once it dries on stage. So we have a couple of effects in the show that are like massive blood explosions. And so when it dries on the stage as time passes, it still looks like real blood. Phelps said she considered the needs of the show when choosing a blood recipe. The rule of thumb before I found this recipe was a, a recipe that uses um, Dawn dish soap, um, but it doesn't dry on stage. It stays kind of tacky. Um, so it just depends on like if the blood is being eaten and needs to be edible, which this gets in somebody's face, so it has to be edible. It's sweet because of the corn syrup, but actually has a little bit of powdered cocoa in it, so it tastes like chocolate, um, which is good for the actors. Um, you just kind of have to determine like what you need your blood to look like on stage, and for this we needed the most realistic looking stuff possible and to dry the most realistic as possible. Phelps made blood packs while we talked. She squirted blood from a bottle into plastic sandwich bags and sealed them with an iron into sugar packet-sized shapes. We have several different kinds of blood effects in the show, um, and the ones I'm making right now are kind of like the blood explosion blood packs. Um, so when someone gets like their neck bit or their neck sliced, that's what these are for. We have like several squeeze bottles like this um, backstage that are also used for a couple of stab wounds. Phelps said mastering special effects in theater is difficult because there's only one chance to get it right. It doesn't always go well. Um, we have the problem where, you know, it's, it's partially, um, you know, relying on the actor to make sure that they do it right every time. And um, for the most part, it's pretty reliable. Um, nothing has burst on stage when it shouldn't. Um, so I'm very thankful for that because that's definitely happened to me before. Um, but it's, I, it's just dependent on the actor trusting your actors, and I do very much. They're highly qualified to die on stage, I suppose. <laughs> she said this trust in the actors pays off big time. I think it adds like a whole new element to a show, um, especially if you're not going in it expecting there to be that much like blood and gore. Um, and I think when it's tastefully done, it really like amps up a show. So I'm actually looking forward to doing it again. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Sheila Raghavendran. This last piece is mine and features blood, the body fluid, and blood as ancestry. I cooked and ate a Filipino pork blood stew called diniguan for the first time with fellow Filipino ASR producer Angelo Bautista. There's about three seconds of squishy blood sounds in this piece, so if you're not into that, please use your own discretion. Rong Cheng Supermarket, I believe that's the name of it. I will fact check that on my way out. Looking for pig's blood for my dinaguan. Dinaguan. That's a Filipino stew made up of pork cooked in pig's blood. My mom made it for herself a lot when I was younger. I remember her buying blocks of blood from the Oriental store on the way home from my preschool in Arkansas. I grew up in three states, and every time we moved, my parents would factor in our proximity to Asian stores that would carry our brand of jasmine rice, show my wrappers in bulk, and blood. This was my first time going to one alone and in a new state, even though I've been here for a year and a half. I went to the wrong Chinese grocery on 10th Street to look for blood. Uh, it smells like childhood. I've never been here before, but I have been to Mama's Korean restaurant next to it. It's in Scholar's Quad, so like on the way to College Mall on the 9 bus route. It smells like childhood, so there's lots of live seafood in tanks. I've always been curious about Dinaguan. 
I had a lot of nosebleeds in elementary school to the disgust of my classmates. They were also disgusted by whatever Filipino food I brought for lunch. Dinaguan came to represent everything that set me apart from them. They were all mostly white and had normal nasal membranes. But I didn't feel the push to cook Dinaguan until I binge-watched the CW musical comedy series, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. So you want to speak Tagalog, the mother tongue of the Philippines? Let's start with hello, mabuhay. Say it with me. Mabuhay. Nice to meet you. Rachel Bloom plays the title character, Rebecca. Her ex is a Filipino guy named Josh Chan. At this point in the episode, she's about to spend Thanksgiving with his family. smells weird in here. Oh, uh, well, it's a Filipino dish called dinaguan. It consists of pork cooked in pork's blood. You want to try some? That was the first time I'd ever seen a Filipino family on TV, and it was bold for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend to introduce them and their food at such an American holiday. Rebecca even had the blood in a clear glass bowl. But it was also wrong to me that a white Jewish woman on TV was trying harder to connect to Filipino culture than I ever do, which is how I wound up at Rong Cheng. I wandered around for about 15 minutes until I finally asked for help. I paid $6 for a pound of blood, which came in an open produce bag that I tied off in my car. Thank you. Should we give it to you open? Yes! <laughs> mm-hmm. Fellow Filipino ASR producer Angela Bautista let me use his kitchen. Um, I accepted it though, like it didn't seem weird. After I got the blood, I called my mom and she told me to freeze it and then leave it out to thaw the night before I used it. I didn't do that. I moved it from the freezer to the fridge, and when I got to Angela's apartment, it was still solid in the middle. So what am I doing with this? I am putting it in a bowl. Okay, uh, just to thaw? I don't know. Does it need to thaw more? It does. It feels, it's a block. I see. Oh. 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 It looks like frozen barbecue sauce. I got the recipe from a food blog called Kawaling Pinoy. The prep work outside the meat and blood was mincing onions, garlic, and ginger. It took us a while, since neither of us really know what mincing is. And Angelo is doing more work than I thought he would, and that he thought he would. But that's fine. I'm helping. He's helping. And we left all that simmering in oil and vinegar. Oh god. Our onions are burning. Okay, can we, like, turn off the- can we turn that off? Yeah, let's turn that off. Okay. The recipe said it would take an hour in total, 20 minutes prep and 40 minutes cooking time. I have- I have pork here. I- I've never handled red meat, actually. I've only handled chicken. And even then, it was a horrible experience. I- I read multiple recipes, and they're like, cut a pork belly into strips, or cut a pig intestines into strips. And I'm like, how? Or, where do those come from? I'm sorry that my knives this, are terrible. This is a paradigm. I know. This will take a while. So bad. I think you have to, like, actually handle the meat. Like, put your hand on it and cut it. Oh no, Angelo! <laughs> oh no, oh god. <laughs> Why can't meat be, like, loaves of bread? Okay, I got it. I got it. I'm not thinking about that this was once a living creature. It's fine. Meanwhile, the blood thawed away in the sink. It was supposed to have been liquid the whole time, sitting there mixed with vinegar. I dumped it out into a bowl after we started cooking the pork. It doesn't look like blood, though. It looks- because I remember the first time I saw my mother with blood, I was like, is that chocolate pudding? She said, no, it's blood. And I was like, looks like chocolate pudding. But this isn't chocolate pudding. No, it's not, but I was a child. I was dumb. <laughs> yeah. Like, because it's so chunky, it's very brown right now, but like when it was dripping out of the bag, it was, it was definitely red. Yeah, the more I play with it, I kind of forget that it's blood. Yeah. 
Once the pork was cooked, we added the blood. Then we left it to simmer until it looked like stew. So it took us about two hours, because I suck at planning. But now we have some dinner bon before us on this table in Angelo's home. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel, Angelo? I am very, I'm, I'm very hungry mm-hmm. and very tired. Yeah. And this looks very good. I don't really care that it's pig's blood. I just want to eat it. And um, my mother promised that if we mess it up somehow, we won't die. So that's good. Here's to not dying. Yeah. Okay, let's try it. We're eating with white rice, by the way. That's relevant, I think. I mean, it's required. That's vinegary. Oh my god. That's a ton of vinegar. It's good, though. Yeah. Holy wow. This is, this tastes Filipino, because the only, the most Filipino thing I eat regularly is adobo. Yeah, and almost all Filipino dishes just have vinegar in them. I swear that I've had this before. Like my mom has served this to me. I just, I never knew what it was called. I don't know. Whenever, whenever we eat at dinner at my house, um, I kind of just eat what's given to me. She doesn't tell me what it is or anything. Like I know some dishes, I just don't know the names of them. For me, my mom like Americanized them for me. I don't know. I don't think she's made this before. Mm-hmm. If not, she just didn't tell me it was stewed pig's blood. This was a big commitment to be cooking Filipino food. Yeah, this is probably the most Filipino thing I've ever made. Yeah. Music in this piece came from Pottington Bear. Thanks again to Angelo for letting me use your kitchen and for recording everything. Shout out to the CW, my mom, and Kabaling Pinoy. Oh my god, Angelo. Have you seen Master of None? I've seen, like, com- like the first episode. <laughs> okay, so you didn't see the second episode, no. which is about immigrant child guilt. Um, anyway, my dad had a pet chicken. <laughs> Aww. And, uh, one day he got home from school, and it was, like, dinner time, we're eating chicken. <laughs> and it was his chicken. <laughs> well- for America Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Catherine Delarosa. From Bloom, <laughs> from uh, again live, live. What is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is. This is. This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens, conspiracy, journalism, and lesbians. <laughs> <laughs>